today we get to jump into a, a story in the Old Testament about somebody that is one of my favorite names in the Bible. It, we're going to talk today about Mephibosheth. Now, I don't know about you, but that just makes me smile when I say, say it with me, ready? Mephibosheth. It's just kind of fun. But that's not really the reason that we are going to examine him and look at this story about him today. It's because there is a powerful message in the story about Mephibosheth, about uh, us being invited to the table in spite of uh, the, the limitations, in spite of what may cause us to feel like we don't belong or feel like we don't deserve it, uh, we still have a seat at the table. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But uh, you know, I, I love his story because I believe he's a, a, a picture of us, a picture of our lives. And so let me give you a little bit of a backstory here. We're eventually going to be in 2 Samuel 9. If you want to begin to find your way there in the Bible, you can. But a little backstory before we start reading this chapter. At the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is still king. Now keep in mind, David, way earlier in the book, David was anointed as the next king. And even while Saul was still reigning, a really unique circumstance is that David was best friends with the king's son, Jonathan. And so, whereas Jonathan, it might seem, would be one who would be in line for the throne, Jonathan actually was completely on board with David. He believed that God had called David and anointed David, and so he um, enters into this covenant relationship with David. He even asked David, when you become king, please extend kindness to my family. And so, he's on board with it. You get to the end of 1 Samuel, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are both killed in a battle. Now, after they are killed in battle, as you might presume, it wasn't just a smooth transition where everybody said, oh yeah, we heard that this guy David had been anointed to be the next king. I mean, when a king dies, what normally happens? One of the sons, the next in line, takes over, right? In fact, it, it was such a, a big deal that it was not at all uncommon for sons to fight over, sometimes to kill one another, because they wanted to get rid of any of the competition that might keep them from becoming king. And so when Saul and Jonathan die, there is one of the sons named Ishbosheth who says, I want to be king, and he is recognized as king over Israel. Now Judah... The, the, the separate tribes said, we recognize David as our king. And so there's this, this conflict, this war between Ishbosheth and David, and they're fighting over who is going to be, you know, really the next king. And it's in that context of you know, having this opposition and, and all of that, that that we get our story today. But we are introduced a little bit to. Um, Mephibosheth in chapter 4. So 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Let's read this together. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. I find it really interesting and, and significant that you don't even find out his name until they've already told you that he was lame. 
It's like this twice, actually. But it's like this, this identity was that, that he was lame in both feet. That's who he was. It was almost like he didn't even really matter. It's almost like his name didn't matter. They added the name as an afterthought. His name was Mephibosheth. But the first thing they do is they tell what happened to him. So you get this picture. He's five years old. His grandfather and his father are both killed in battle. And so his, his nurse, his caretaker, in an attempt to spare his life because they could come after any potential uh, you know, heirs to the throne and, and try to kill them. And so the, the caretaker knows that, picks him up and begins to flee with this young five-year-old boy. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if she tripped and dropped him. We don't know if he was too heavy. He slipped out of her arms. We don't know if he wiggled out. We, we don't know what happened, but we do know that he fell. And as a result, he was injured tragically to the place that he was. It says that he was lame in both feet. He wasn't able to walk. He wasn't able to use his feet for the rest of his life. A tragic situation that, that happened in the life of Mephibosheth. And it just seemed to, to go downhill from there. I mean, he was a five-year-old boy. Some of you maybe have five-year-old boys, or you have had five-year-old boys, or maybe you can remember being a five-year-old boy. Five-year-old boys are full of a lot of energy. They like to run and jump and play and, you know, break things. And, you know, that's what five-year-old boys do. And, and, and I'm assuming that Mephibosheth was a normal, active five-year-old boy. And then in an instant, everything changed. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had a situation where in just a moment everything changed. You know, it only takes one doctor's visit. It only takes one phone call from a son or from a daughter. It only takes one DM. It only takes one email that you find on your spouse's computer. And everything, in an instant, everything can change. And that happened in this young man's life, and, and everything went downhill. And I often wonder, you know, what did people think about Mephibosheth when they met him? I mean, his identity, of course, it seems to be. He was lame in both feet, and that's how everybody knew him. But, but do you wonder what they assumed about him? Do you wonder if they, uh, did they know the story? Did they not know the story? What about people that met him? Did they assume maybe he was born this way? Maybe he's been this way all of his life. Maybe he did something to himself. Maybe he did something dumb. It was a poor decision on his part that led to this. Was that it? I mean, there are all kinds of assumptions that, that they could have made about Mephibosheth. And, you know, just a little aside here, but we can do the same thing today when we see people and, and we, we see something's not right in their lives and sometimes we can make assumptions about why that might be the case. That co-worker that is just mean to you all the time, you know, she just doesn't give you the time of day and is just, you know, frankly, just doesn't treat you with much kindness at all. You, you know, maybe the assumption is, she just wants to be mean. You know, she's just mean-spirited. There's something in her ain't right. You know, we, we can assume these things. Maybe the reality is that she has been hurt so much in her life. There's so much deep hurt, and she doesn't know how to deal with it appropriately, and it just comes out in being mean to people and putting up walls and not letting anybody in. Maybe that, that person you know that has a real problem with drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's not because he wanted to just be a party animal and he's just trying to have fun all the time and be irresponsible. Maybe the real issue was something tragic happened in his life. Maybe he experienced some type of loss and he didn't know how to, to, to cope with it appropriately and, and he chose this path and just got sucked into it and, and just doesn't know how to get out of it. 
Maybe that young girl that is known for sleeping around with anybody and everybody, it's not so much that she's just trying, seeking pleasure. Maybe the real story is that she has been abused in her home. Maybe she has no male figure in her life who loves her and values her. Maybe she's just looking for anyone to show any kind of attention. See, we can make assumptions about what's behind the problem and sometimes it not be right. In this case, the reason Mephibosheth was in the condition he was in is because somebody loved him enough to try to get him out of harm's way. But something tragic happened. And sometimes that's the way it goes. Sometimes there are tragic things that, that happen in our lives. Now that's not excusing a wrong response to that. Okay, All those things I mentioned before, it's not an excuse for that. But maybe to help understand a little bit um, to, to realize you, know, you never know what's behind it. In this case, um, it, it wasn't what people might have thought. Well, let's read about uh, what happened with him in chapter 9. And I'm just going to read the entire chapter. I don't usually read this much all at once. It's just 13 verses, but it's kind of a story. And I don't want to interrupt the story. It's a great story. So let's just start reading in verse 1. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there still no one alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. Listen to this. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. You know, whenever we read Scripture, we need to be careful not to make it say something that it does, and we need to be careful not to read too much into it. But I do think it's also important when we're reading a passage like this to ask the question, where do I find myself in that story? And, and is there something going on here that is representative of a bigger picture? Do we see the character of God displayed in the story in some way? Do we see ourselves in the story in some way? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. See, we see the character of God displayed through David. Now, that's not to say that David is God. We know that David made mistakes. He was a man after God's own heart. He made mistakes. But, but, but the character of God comes out. In fact, one of the things that he says is he wanted to show God's kindness his desire was to reflect the character qualities of God to Mephibosheth, to anybody in uh, Jonathan's household. 
And then we get Mephibosheth, and he is a picture of us. It just keeps saying over and over again, you know, what his ailments were, what his disabilities were. And it seems that that's his identity. And I suspect that there are some here with us today, there's some that are following with us online that are watching that can relate to that and say, man, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like my identity is this thing that happened to me. Maybe you've gone through something similar. Maybe it's been some kind of physical struggle. Maybe it's been an emotional struggle. Maybe it was a decision that you made early in your life. Maybe you got pregnant uh, outside of marriage. Maybe you've been married multiple times. Maybe you know, you've gotten involved in drugs and alcohol or whatever it may be. And there are these decisions that you made and you feel like that just continues to be your identity. And it's like, I just can't seem to get past that. It just seems like no matter what I do, I keep coming back to this. Like Mephibosheth, he was lame in both feet. It just kind of keeps coming up over and over and over again. And, and we can relate to that. And maybe if you felt pushed out in that society... To, to not be able to walk, to have a disability like that, that was not good. I mean, they were totally pushed off to the side. They were totally disregarded, not valued in any way. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you feel that sense of isolation, of, of just being less than everybody else. And if so, you fit into this story. But even if you don't, even if you think, you know, life's been pretty good to me. And, and, and I really don't have any complaints and I feel good about who I am, you're still Mephibosheth because we're sinful. We fall short of God's standards. There's not a single one of us that deserves to have a, a seat at the king's table. Not one of us. And yet God loves us enough to continue to reach out to us and to, to want us to, to be at his table. So it's a great story of God's goodness and his faithfulness. So David... Ask a question. There's some great names in this chapter, by the way. Zeba is another good one. That sounds like a good, strong, manly name, doesn't it? Zeba. So he calls in Zeba, who is a servant of Saul, and he asks him the question, is there anybody left? How did Zeba answer his question? It's a bit sad to me. Verse 3. There is still a son of Jonathan, but there's not a period there. There is still a son of... Jonathan, he is lame in both feet. Why would Ziba say to King David, he's lame in both feet? David didn't ask him if he had any disability. He didn't ask for any description. He just said, is there anybody left? And he offered this up. We know why he said what he said. He was telling David, look, yes, there's one left, but I don't think you want this one. King, I appreciate your heart, and, and I, I know that you're a kind man, but you've got to understand, this guy's lame in both feet. He's going to be of no value to you whatsoever. In fact, he's going to be a burden, and if you bring him into your household, now you've got to help take care of him, and it just adds all this. King, I think you might want to rethink going after this guy. How did David respond? Did he hesitate? Did he say, okay, thank you for telling me. I think I'll go another direction. No, he immediately just says, where is he? Where is he? And then he tells him, go get him. Go get him now. I want you to bring him back. I don't care if he's lame in both feet. It's not about him and his disability. It's about the fact that I want to show God's kindness to somebody. So go get him. 
Now, where was he? This is important and it would be easy for us to miss because we don't know the language and, 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 and understand the meaning of the names of places, but he was in a place called Lodabar. That's two, two words in Hebrew. The first word, lo, means no. Okay, just remember that. You get that in your head, you remember that for the rest of your life. Whenever you're reading in the Old, in the Old Testament and you see the word lo, L-O, lo means no or not. Okay? So no, and then debar means pasture. No pasture. Where was this guy living? He, in an agricultural society, lived in a place called no pasture. I mean, he is living in a God-forsaken, barren place, basically the middle of nowhere. I mean, doesn't it just fit his life? I mean, here he is. He went from being the king's grandson to having everything going for him. Five-year-old boy. He has this accident. He's lame in both feet. His life will never look the same again. And now he's stuck living in Lodabar. He's living in the middle of nowhere with nothing to look forward to. It's a, it's a sad picture. Everything got changed. But listen, just as everything went downhill in one little instant, in one little a moment's time, everything gets flipped in a moment's time as well because when the king enters the story, everything can change just like that. And that's what's about to happen for Mephibosheth. They go after him. They bring him in. Now, do you ever wonder what was going through his mind when Ziba hunted him down in Lodabar and says, the king wants you to come. I don't know this for sure, but my suspicion is he wasn't excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking that his first thought was probably not, the king wants to do something kind for me. His first thought may have been, okay, I know I'm not much of a threat and all, but maybe he just wants to get rid of any possibility of somebody being a threat to him. And that would have been understandable. I mean, he had, he had entered into this covenant with Jonathan. He had promised to you know, show kindness to his family. But it wouldn't it have been easy to back out of that because I mentioned a moment ago, they've, they've had war between Saul's household and David. And so he could have said, man, I forget that. I mean, that was before these circumstances. Now members of his family are coming after me. They're trying to destroy me. And he finally defeats them at the end of chapter 8. And the very first thing he does in chapter 9 is fulfill his promise. I say, is there anybody out there that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? I don't think that's what's going through Mephibosheth's mind at this point. And we know that too because David was sensitive enough and you know, we, we can't see body language. We don't know what was going on. But it, but it does say that when he came that he bowed down to pay him honor. I'm suspecting that he's, that he's probably shaking. He's probably nervous. He's scared to death. And David recognizes that. And the first thing he says to him, verse 7, is don't be afraid. Mephibosheth, I didn't bring you here to do you harm. I brought you here to bless you. I brought you here to show you God's kindness. And so he explains to him what he's going to do. And, and, and he tells him, I'm going to restore all the land that was part of your grandfather's estate. And then I'm going to invite you to eat at my table. And you will have a seat at my table for the rest of your life. And Mephibosheth's response, I think we can relate to this in verse 8. He, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Why in the world, king, would you want somebody like me at your table? Let me tell you why. It had absolutely nothing to do with Mephibosheth or with his 
deserving it or earning it in any way. It had everything to do with the king's character. It was all about the king, not about the person being invited to the table. And the same thing is still true today. Yes, you and I are Mephibosheth. Yes, we have all these disabilities, all these things that are wrong with us. And, and, and we might think, no, I don't have a place at the table. That's not for me. That's for somebody else, somebody that has it all together, somebody that doesn't make the mistakes that I make. But listen, we don't get invited to the table because of something that we have done. We get invited to the table because the king is good and he wants to display his kindness to us. That's the only reason we come. It's a display of the kindness of God. Now, some may see that and say, man, I don't know about that. You know, I read my Bible and, and, and I see stories and God's wiping out entire groups of people. And you get to, we have our, our men's group, Friday mornings, we've been reading through the New Testament. We're in Revelation now. You get into Revelation, there's some strong stuff there where the wrath of God is poured out. And it's like, wow, I mean, God doesn't mess around when it comes to his wrath being poured out. And you, people might look at that and say, that doesn't seem like a kind God to me. When I look at the suffering in the world and I look at evil that takes place and when I look at what's happened in my life and that one moment that changed everything for me, I don't see the kindness of God in any of that. But guys, let me tell you where we do see the kindness of God. We see the kindness of God in the cross. Because in, in the cross, God took this wrath that every single one of us deserves because we are sinful, because we do fall short of God's standard. God would be somehow less than God if He didn't punish sin, if He just allowed it to happen and did nothing about it. He has to punish sin. But rather than pouring His wrath out on every one of us, what God has done is said, I've come up with another plan. I want to send my Son to, to live as a human being and to, 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 to take breath as a human being and to bleed and die in your place. I, I want him to be the recipient of my wrath. I'm still going to pour my wrath out and I'm not going to hold back in any way because sin needs to be punished, but I'm going to put that punishment on my own son. That's the kindness of God. If we ever doubt the kindness of God, we should look to the cross. And those difficulties that come in our lives and the painful things in our lives, you know, those things... They just point us to the fact that, that we need God in our lives. And that's what God uses many times to draw us to Him even more. You know, it's not until you realize that you're sick that you start to seek out medicine that you need to get better. Sometimes we, we need an awareness that we're sick. That we, we, we can't do it on our own. And it helps us to turn toward God. Well, God is a God whose desire is to display His kindness. Now, if we reject that, if we reject the cross, if we reject Christ, and we say, I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to do my own thing, then yeah, we bring that wrath upon ourselves. But that's not, that's not a knock on God's kindness. He's done everything necessary in order for us not to receive that. You know, the Bible tells us, Romans 2, 4 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And when we really experience the kindness of God and we realize who He is and what He has done for us and He's given Himself for us, it causes us to want to respond in faith. I mean, that's my story. It's what happened to me as a teenage boy when I first started to figure it all out. And I realized who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. You know, it just kind of drew my heart in. And, and I said, I, I, 
I want to follow a God like that. I want to give my life to a God like that. I, I, want to, I want to commit everything that I have to a God like that and sharing His story with as many people as I possibly can. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It may have taken a little while, but Mephibosheth, it, it kind of sunk in with him, I think, that he had nothing to fear, that the king was for him, not against him. He, he, he didn't feel like he earned it or deserved it. But he was invited to the table. Now the question is, how did he get there? How did he get to the king's table? We've got a little prop there, if you don't mind bringing that to me here real quick. Um, I, I wonder what it would have taken. Thank you, dear. What, what would it have taken to get Mephibosheth over to his place at the table? Now, I don't know exactly what they, you know, if they had crutches like we do now, but I'm thinking, you know, his feet didn't work right. He, he, he could have gotten there, but it may have been a long way over to that table. You know what I hope might have happened? What I hope is that somebody sitting at the table might have seen him struggling, working so hard to get there on his own, and they might have gotten up from the table and come over and said, let me just help you. Let me help you over to the table. And this is a picture of what the church is supposed to be. This is what we do. We take those who are struggling, who can't get there on their own, and we help them to the table. Church, listen to me. Don't wait to be asked to help somebody over to the table. Don't wait. We got to go get them. We got to go to where people are and say, look, there's a place for you here at the table. And you know what? It might mean that you need to, to move over. It might need, mean that you need to make room for somebody else. Sometimes we get a little comfortable at the table. It's like, this is, this is my table. This is not your table. And it's not my table. This is God's table. And we have to invite the people that God wants at His table. You know who God wants at His table? Anybody who's willing to come. God wants us all at his table. Mephibosheth couldn't get over that. Even when he, he called him by name. I just wonder what, what must have gone through his head when he heard the king saying, you know my name? He did. And the king of kings knows your name. And he's inviting you to come to the table. If you have your seat already, I can't encourage you strongly enough to go get somebody and bring them to the table with you. Let somebody know that there's plenty of room at the king's table. And you can come. And here's the thing, you don't, you don't have to clean up your act first. You know, don't we think that way sometimes? It's like, hey, you know, I can't come to the king's table. I'm not dressed right. You know, I don't have the right manners. Listen, you, you learn your manners once you come to the table. You know, you're sitting there at the table and you're shoving food in your mouth and using your hands and somebody next to you says, hey, um, you, know, you, you, you don't have to eat like that. Let me show you a different way. Look, I get it. I'm not judging. I, I was the same way, and I know what it was like, and I know you probably feel uncomfortable. Sometimes, hey, I feel uncomfortable here too. I'm not sure why the king wants me at his table either. But, but, but here's what I've learned. Let me help you figure out what it looks like to eat at the king's table. 
and, and, and we learn and we grow. We don't have to have it all together. But what we do have to do, we have to receive the invitation to come. You know, in this story, Mephibosheth didn't really have an option. When, when they send a servant for you and they say the king wants you, you're going to come. There's, there's really no questioning that. In our case, we do, we do have an option. And through the cross, we have been invited to the king's table, but we need to choose whether or not we're going to respond to that. I know many of you have already, you've already chosen. You've already said yes. The Bible tells us that for all who believed in him, those who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. We just simply need to receive the invitation. The way we do that is by faith. And faith involves, going back to what we said before, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Once we understand what Christ has done for us and the sacrifice that, that he has given for us, that he gave up his life for us, the appropriate response to that is one of faith. It's to say, yes, I, I want to come, and, and I'm acknowledging that this is not my table. I don't make the rules. I don't come on my own terms. I don't even come because of my own worthiness. I, I'm lame in both feet. I don't deserve to have a place at the king's table. But he wants me there anyway, and so I'm just going to say yes. And I want to invite you this morning, if you've never come to a place of trusting in Christ, of saying yes to the gospel, saying yes to Jesus, to do that. In fact, I want to invite you to pray with us right now, whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online. You need to choose to receive the king's invitation to come to, to the table. So let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, if you're ready to receive that invitation to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Christ and say, I'm acknowledging you as Lord of my life. I'm giving myself to you from this day on. Then I want to invite you to pray a prayer like this. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in your heart and your mind. God knows. But just tell him this. Something like this. God, thank you that you want me at your table. I, I know that I'm sinful. I don't deserve a place here. But I believe that Jesus died to cover my sins. And because of that, I want to put my trust and my faith in him. All of me. Lord Jesus, I give to you today. And I thank you for saving me. And I thank you for giving me a place at your table for the rest of my life. In your precious name I pray. Amen.